Encouraging notes, encouraging notes that can change one's perspective and attitude. It is amazing how much people are positively impacted by a kind word of genuine care, right? A, 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 a positive, truthful note has amazing impact. James Taylor expressed it really well in his poem, Shower the People. Um, he says, just shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are going to work out fine if you only will. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are going to be much better if you only will. I can personally testify to the power of being showered with love. In just the past few days, I received many remarkably encouraging notes. Uh, here's one. Received this from a pastor who is very, very far away. Uh, and he wrote me this and said, I'm praying this wonderful truth over your life. And here he quoted Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He continued, thank you for being a pastor to pastors all over the world and to me. Isn't that great? How kind is that? Now, contrast that encouraging note with this. I want to show you the senior ad that a friend of mine placed in his daughter's high school yearbook. Okay, in a certain town which shall remain nameless in Georgia, uh, the yearbooks were released this last week, and Anna Hemingway, her <laughs> dad and mom, put this ad. Cute picture of Anna, and then it says, the national debt is over 20 trillion. Socialist millennials with neck tattoos will soon be in power. Instead of reaching for the stars, you're more likely to be reaching for the Prozac bottle when you're my age. <laughs> that is hilarious. Oh, my good! Actually, that is a love note. It really is. It's just from a very funny dad with a sick sense of humor. Um, here's another positive note. A teacher in our church received this uh, this week. So many of you are educators, and I know you get wonderful notes. Here's one that uh, Amy Couch got. Dear Mrs. Couch, you have been an absolutely amazing teacher, have taught me so many great things through the fun lessons and activities. With your help on mutualism and commensalism, I qualified for, in the science test for a math and science team and went to state. How about that? Here's one more. It came to me recently. Uh, Wayne, I read the All the Difference devotional this morning, and it was great. But knowing your love for chocolate, I mistakenly read Anatomy of My Heresy as Anatomy of My Hershey. <laughs> that would be a better note. Aren't those delightful? How many of you are also uplifted? Encouraging notes really do lift your heart. How many of you are blessed when you get a love note, encouraging note? Okay, well, today is your lucky day. Because we're about to study a love note that was written for you. And it comes from God. Open your Bible, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and let's read verse 1. Philippians 4, 1. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. As we summarize in our worship guide there that you got when you came in, look inside there. You are beloved brethren. This letter applies to more than just the church at Philippi. All believers in Jesus are beloved brethren of the apostles and Jesus himself. Now, the observant ones among you are thinking in your uh, Burton Guster voice from the old hit TV show, Psych, come on, son. You taught that verse last time as an extension of the thought in chapter 3. Sean, right? And, of course, in my Sean Spencer voice, I reply, I've heard it both ways, all right? And actually, Sean is right this time. Philippians 4.1 is one of Paul's remarkably subtle transitions that actually fits both thought sections, the one before and the one behind. So then is a transition term. It looks back to chapter 3, 
In chapter 3, Christians learn to set our minds on the things of Christ, the citizenship we have in heaven, not on earthly things. So then also looks to the next connected idea, which is that Christians are dearly loved as a family of brethren. And there is one more textual issue before we move on. You probably are thinking about this if you're looking at the text. You're probably thinking of it in, in Sean's fake uh, Juliet O'Hara voice. Brothers, was this only addressed to men? Uh, no, Jules, great question, but the English is actually misleading. Technically, the Greek word is brothers, but in this context, it doesn't, it doesn't mean only males. Adelphos is a, uh, a compound expression. Get this, it's really cool. It means of one womb, of one womb. Uh, it's, it's where we get the British slang phrase, twin sons of a different mother. Uh, I just had lunch this last week with the Frisco Christian Alliance, and there's one pastor there who always illustrates Adelphos perfectly. This guy greeted me this week the way he always does. I walk in, he's always there early, and he gets up and he goes, there he is, my twin brother of a different mother, and he gives me a big hug. That's Adelphos. Adelphos now, it can be used, when you see it in the Bible, it can be used for, for male brothers, it can be used for all the citizens of a nation, or it can be used for every single human, all descended from Eve. Um, in this scenario, where it's addressed to a whole church, it means brothers and sisters together, all who are reborn through Jesus. The Christian Standard Bible is a newer translation that I really, really like. And the CSB handles this better, I think. It reads this way. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And what's Paul's message to these men and women? You're dearly loved. Stand firm in this truth. You are longed for. You are my joy and my crown. You're my joy and crown. Reminds me of a lunch I had with another pastor. We got to talking about his family. I was asking about his kids and stuff. And, and when the family was brought up, he said, oh, do you want to see a picture of my pride and joy? And I replied, sure. So he promptly got his wallet out, and he reached in his wallet and pulled out this photo. <laughs> it's a bottle of pride cleaner and joy detergent. Unlike that cad, Paul is not joking. He wants all Christians of all times to see the Philippians here. And seeing them, God through Paul wants us to know this is what Christians mean to him. We who trust Jesus are dearly beloved of God. We are God's pride and joy, as Max Lucado likes to say. I love this phrase. He says, your picture is on God's refrigerator, right? This perspective, I think you can at least partially understand this perspective if you're a, a parent or a teacher or a coach or a trainer. Think about it. When a student or a child enters your life, they're like a lump of, clay, of coal, right? They're just a, there's an old lump of coal. And, and you've got to work hard to shape that lump of coal. It, it requires sweat and tears and, quite frankly, often blood to shape that student. You have to continuously apply just the right pressure so that you can, over time, turn that lump of coal into a beautiful diamond. This, this is the crowning achievement to God. He graciously takes people who are absolutely unworthy of Him, and He makes them His holy family. This is not achieved by hocus pocus. It's achieved by the blood, sweat, and tears of God himself. It's the sacrifice of God the Son that changes all of us who trust him from lumps of coal into a sparkling crown of diamonds. All God's people said, therefore, Christians should agree in the Lord. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Suntukahehi to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know the nature of their quarrel. 
but obviously you did it and sin with me were disagreeing. Um, they were likely disagreeing in a disagreeable manner. I was teasing about the names. I really do find their Greek names fascinating. Suntuke means an accident. Get that accident. Euodia is a successful journey. Now get this. I can find examples of each of these names, these two names being used in other Greek texts, in fact, a number of other Greek texts, to describe the birthing process. Seriously. Maybe they're angry over the fact that they are each named for how they came into this world, right? Accident, wonderful journey, right? They may be like uh, the, the girls that a friend of mine met. He's a physician at a children's hospital, and there was a family that was there for his clinic, and he had a, a girl named Precious uh, that was supposed to come back for his clinic. He gets out there, and Precious has a twin sister named Jessica, and they're both together, not wanting to take the wrong kid. He says to the girl on the left, are you Precious? And he said, the poor girl's face immediately fell, and she said, no, I'm just Jessica. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's awful. Suntuke, the accident, may feel like that. She could, I don't know, she could be physical sister with Euodia, the successful journey, and they're fighting over their parents' poor choice of names. It may have looked a little bit like my brother and I's childhood fights. You always get the good stuff. Oh, yeah? Well, mom and dad wanted me. You were an accident. I heard Aunt Mary say so. <laughs> of course, they're sisters in Christ no matter what their physical parentage. And a name is more than just a word. Suntuke's name is a reflection of a cry that runs all through history. It's the cry of Esau. It's a cry many of you have cried because of your, your earthly families. Have you no blessing for me, Father? It's a very heart-wrenching cry, and Philippians 4 answers it beautifully. Look again at verse 1. Oh, yes. Yes, there's a blessing for you, a blessing better than anything any earthly parent could ever bestow on you. Whether you are the accident or the successful journey, you, Christian, are God's dearly beloved. All God's people said, amen. amen. So start getting along. Agree is probably a misleading translation, but in, in defense of the, of the Bible writers, there, there's no English term that does justice to the Greek term phroneo. Fernando has a rich and, and frankly, really important lineage. Um, let, me, let me walk you through it. To Homer, 800 years before Paul wrote, uh, Fernando, he used that of the diaphragm. Seriously, the physical diaphragm that, you know, that makes you breathe. Um, and the reason was, in the thought of that time, and especially in Homer's thought, the diaphragm was where your soul was hiding. That was the, the psyche, the suche, the, the, the immaterial part, the non-physical part of the human was at the diaphragm. Uh, by Aristotle's time, 400 years before Paul, uh, phroneo had become used to, he used it as the great word, and this is how it was used for a long, long time, the great word for mind or, or thought, great thoughts was phroneo. Now, by Roman times, a couple hundred years before Paul, phroneo had come to be used in Greek as, and this is really important, it was very widely used as virtuous thought that led to virtuous actions. Virtuous thought led to virtuous actions. In fact, uh, uh, Musonius Rufus writing at the exact same time that Paul's writing Philippians. At the same time, he wrote this. He said, Phroneo and virtue are one. Philosophy is how it's translated. He said, philosophy and virtue. Phroneo, how you think and how you act are one. All right. Now, I know in your Dr. Woody voice that you like to do from Psych, you're asking, why does that matter, Sean? Right? Great question. Thank you, Woody. It matters because Phroneo is a choice. This is an attitude of the soul that leads to virtue. 
That's what Paul means when he pleads with Mrs. Accident and Mrs. Good Journey to phreneo. Their mindset should be so virtuous that virtuous actions toward each other follow. And whence does their virtue come? From the Lord. Look, look, he says the Lord is near. He is near. He's here. We don't reach to him. Our thought is not the prime mover. Our thought is phreneo in curio. It is thought in the Lord. This is so important to Paul that he urges them. Parakaleo, what our English Bibles translate, encourage or urge. And he actually uses it twice. I urge Euodia. I urge Suntuke. This, this is a, um, parakaleo is a word for training alongside someone. Uh, by the way, the, the construction is the exact same that, that God uses when he tries to explain the unexplainable to us, the Holy Spirit of God. The paraclete, parakaleo, same, same construction. That doesn't mean that we <coughs> take the Spirit's place. What it means is just as the Holy Spirit is right with every single Christian, we are to train alongside Christians. Paul's detailing here something that is caught. This is not something that's proscribed. It's an, it's an inside-out thing. Think about it. That's why you learn so much more from a person you know than from a textbook that you merely read. Textbooks are great, but full transformation occurs when life exemplifies the lesson for another life. God, through Paul, is coming alongside and showing them how to come together, which Paul expands on in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Right side of the notes, we give this the title, Help the Brethren Come Together. Help the Brethren Come Together. Now, true partner or loyal companion in verse 3 is, is very likely another name. Suzugos is a Greek name. Now, it also was used as a masculine word for companion. I'm not sure why the translators, though, here don't render it as a name, except all I can think is they must be embarrassed that it would be a boy named Sue. Um, that didn't slow them down with poor accident. Um, I tend to think Eugene Peterson is, is correct. He has a rough translation, a fascinating work called The Message, and he puts verse 3 this way. Oh, and yes, uh, Suzu goes, since you're right there to help them work things out, do your best with them. That's nice. I think that captures the, the pith, the meaning there. Regardless of whether it's a name or it may be just some unknown elder who received this letter, Paul wants this dude, Suzu goes, to pull everybody together. And lest he think poorly of them, or lest he treat them harshly, look at the beautiful way Paul describes them. Gospel contenders, co-workers, ones whose names are in the book of life. Let's start with that last one. Ones whose names are in the book of life. That is a direct reference to Jesus' declaration he makes in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Uh, read it with me, everybody. Luke 10, 20, all together. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Very good. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Through Jesus, you are recorded, if you believe in him, as a citizen of heaven. Jose Portillo is our uh, church director of communication, and he recently took his uh, sweet wife, Casey, on an anniversary trip to Italy, and they visited this town, San Marco Argentano, because that is where his people came from, where the Portillos came from. Uh, his grandmother uh, lived and died there. When they got to the city, as soon as people heard his name, they heard what his last name was, they said, oh, you have to meet the mayor. You have to meet the mayor. And they went and got the mayor of the city. The mayor said, oh, oh, come with me. You have to come with me. And they took them to City Hall, which was locked on a weekday because Italy. And um, 
anyway, and, and, she, and she undid the lock and took them inside and, and took out the roles of all the people that have been, been citizens of San Marco Argentino and, and showed him all of his family's names there, showed him how they kept records of families, and his name was there. And then the mayor gave Jose the ceremonial flag to the city. She gave him the key to the city. Here you go, this is it. Folks, that is, that is what God does for you. If you have trusted Jesus as Savior, rejoice. Your name is in the book of life. You fly the flag of heaven. Because of your family relationship, you are in the permanent records. Amen? Paul also calls them gospel contenders. Now, a gospel contender is somebody who fights to share the truth of Jesus. They don't, they don't just passively take the opportunities that might come their way. Gospel contenders actively seek opportunities to share the great news of Jesus. <clears throat> Would Paul, let's say he's talking about us. Would Paul describe us as gospel contenders? Probably not, at least not much of the time. And that needs to change. That must change. We need to start looking for and taking advantage of every opportunity to defend the truth and share it. Amen? We probably do a little better on his, his other description of co-workers. Co-workers are people who partner with the church to serve the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing, and, and quite frankly, this church does so very effectively. Overall, I, I couldn't be much more impressed with Frisco Bible. However, there are surely people here who are believers in Jesus who are here this morning that are not serving in God's church at all and that is tragic not for the church it's tragic for the servant remember the brilliant words of Lumiere life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving right it's the truth now there are seasons to take a break if you just had triplets you probably shouldn't be on the junior high team right but but if you're sitting here and you're feeling convicted, you know, you know that more of your energy should be going into God's work. I invite you to do this. Come right up here after the service. One of our staff will be here, and, and they're going to help you get started on the process, okay? Let's serve. One last thing about verse 3. I can't say for certain, but I think it's very likely that the Clement who's mentioned here was the Clement who was a pastor in Rome. Uh, he was a leader of the largest church in Rome, and he was a friend to Paul in his imprisonment. In my coming book on the Basilica, I have a book coming out on the Basilica that is named for Clement. In my book, I argue that he and his church were the recipients of the letter written to the Romans, that that, that place is where the letter to the Romans was first ever read out loud. By the way, it was written about five years before Philippians was. I would love right now to go off in an excursus about the book and everything I've learned from Basilica de San Clemente, but that's off course, so we'll save it for later. Instead, let's read our last two verses, verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord. How often, everybody? I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Now, remember how Luke 10 told Jesus' people to rejoice. Well, Paul repeats the same command. Luke 10 is in his mind. He repeats the same command. Actually, this is at least the fourth time he's told the Philippians to rejoice. He says, rejoice and be gracious because the Lord is near. Now, even though Paul has Luke 10 on his mind, the repetition of rejoicing in Philippians is really puzzling to me. I mean, I know repetition is very Hebraic, and Paul's a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
But he doesn't actually employ repetition very often. It's not one of Paul's favorite tools. And, and using it here is especially strange because this is the one church that's doing really well overall. I mean, I could understand him repeatedly telling Thessalonica to rejoice or Corinth or Rome, but, but Philippi, one of the healthiest churches of all time, why repeat rejoicing to these people? I've thought about this a bit, and the best I can come up with is this. I think he repeats rejoice because everybody faces pain even in great churches. And everyone needs to continually experience the transformative power of rejoicing. Homer Kent gave a great summary. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. Take a look. He repeats the command because in all the vicissitudes of the Christian life, whether in attacks from errorists, um, it's actually not supposed to be terrorists, it's supposed to be errorists, but autocorrect is fun. Um, Personality clashes among believers, persecution from the world, the threat of imminent death, all of which Paul himself was experiencing at this very time. The Christian is to maintain a spirit of joy in the Lord. He's not immune to sorrow, nor should he be insensitive to the troubles of others, yet he should count the will of God his highest joy, and so be capable of knowing inner peace in every circumstance. That's it. Rejoicing changes lives look at this you're going to see what a skilled writer paul is there are four great terms in philippians these these repeated terms in philippians they make up the four themes of the book here they are number one is joy forms of joy and rejoice appear 18 times in this letter 18 times in 104 verses that that's obviously a big point mind words from mind we've already run into one today occur 12 times in philippians the third great theme is in christ the relationship among believers which is a big part of philippians is established on jesus get this 51 times in a, in in this book jesus name or one of his titles is used another 19 times he's referred to by a personal pronoun he or him that that's that's 70 times in 104 verses obviously a big issue and the fourth one is this really rare word it's a form of koinonia which is a great greek word for fellowship it's soon kononos and um it's i just can't even stress how rare this word is it just was never used um, it means partner or fellow sharer but get this paul so wanted to point out that this is a big deal that the holy spirit inspired him to not only use the noun form of soon kononos he uses a verb form as well which it he may have kind of made up on his own He's obviously going out of his way to show this is a big deal. Sunkonos describes a, a strong grasp of and a real commitment to live out Christian fellowship, what redeemed community really means. Okay, you got those four themes, joy, mind, Christ, partner. Now, now, look at your text. In Philippians 4, 1 through 5, Paul brings all four of these major themes to a pointed application, and it's in rejoicing. Look, joy and unity are interconnected. They, they, they depend upon minds that are set on Christ. Because the Lord is near, God's people can think rightly. They can value gracious unity. They can rejoice always. This is how a person builds to last. This is how a church builds to last. You hold on to Jesus, stand firm, he said, right? You yield to God's spirit and to his authority, and, and joining together with brethren, you join in gracious unity. This runs all through the New Testament, but it's so graphic right here. This is how you build to last. You hold, you join, you yield. This is not just our theme for this year. This is for all of life. And it isn't merely an internal church matter. God says, let your graciousness be known to all. 
epaiakes, what, what my Bible translates as graciousness, it's another one of those words that doesn't come easily into other tongues. By the way, I apologize, there are so many this week. Thankfully, this is not the norm, but this particular text, there are a number of words that just don't really come well into other languages, so we have to look at them in the Greek and try and figure them out. Now, clemency, graciousness, yielding, uh, what your different translations say, those are all fine, but epaiakes is, is more. It means, get this, yielding willfully. That's how you build a last, you yield. It, it's surrendering your rights in order to bless another person. This is a person of balance. It's describing someone who, who stands for truth firmly in a courteous way and is very humble whenever he realizes he's wrong. And God commands this to be our known attitude toward whom, everybody? All. That would include even non-Christians and false teachers and other drivers on the tollway <laughs> and jerks on Reddit and heretics on Twitter, right? All. Now, truth is never sacrificed. You know that. Truth is never sacrificed. But we are to be epaiakes. Not only if our personality is naturally that way. Not only if everyone else is nice. We're to be that way to all. Which surely makes you wonder in your Carlton Lasseter voice, how is it even possible, Spencer? Right? Great question, Lassie. It's all about perspective. When I remember that the Lord is near, it changes how I respond to people. Which brings up a super hot debate in theological circles. Uh, what does Paul mean by the Lord is near? What does he mean by that? There are three possibilities. It could be the Lord is near serves as a reminder you better be gracious. Because that person you were just about to eviscerate, that, that person you were just about to excoriate, that person's parent is standing right behind you. The Lord is near. Second possibility is the Lord is near refers to the comfort of God. How he is our ever-present help in our time of need. Uh, a friend of mine wrote to me advocating uh, this interpretation. She, really beautiful note, she wrote and said this. Verse 5, Wayne, is one of my all-time favorite scriptures. I've often imagined myself in that verse, letting my gentle spirit be known to all men because he is near. Like my big, beautiful dog. She has this huge dog. My big, beautiful dog comforting my precious granddaughter. Very nicely said. Third possibility has to do with eternal judgment. And, and by the way, this has a strong argument from context. The context, Lord is near, almost certainly refers to the return of Jesus, which was a big issue in chapter 3. By the way, James chapter 5 runs parallel to Philippians 3 and 4. It's, it's instructive to see how God speaks through James. Read with me. James 5, 8 and 9, you take the underlined text. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. That's the judge, and he's right there. Knowing that Jesus is near, that he is near right now, and that he is returning in a cosmic moment, I, I can put all the mess of this life in perspective, right? I can be gracious because I know the end of the story. It's... Think of it like this. When your football team is Alabama, you can be very kind to everyone else, right? Because you know your team's going to win. Yeah? That's why Alabama fans say things like, oh, y'all are so sweet, and your little team works so hard. Right? <laughs> Just love Bama people. Now, without the condescension, 
Without the condescension, Christians can be like that. We can rejoice, we can be gracious because the Lord is near. We know the end of the story, amen? 1719, an Englishman named Isaac Watts tried to capture this idea. He tried to capture this, this issue of James 5 and Philippians 4 in, in a song. Uh, now, some of you are fans of hymns, as I am, and so you see Isaac Watts' name, and you say, oh, one of the great masters. You know, you should remember that he was not popular in his day. In fact, the, uh, the church people did not like his stuff at, at all because he scandalously, for the early 18th century, he put emotional words in his songs. That was considered horrible. He also would write, this is shocking, he would write poems where he used his own words instead of the words of the psalmist. It was considered complete um, horror. So, nonetheless, his stuff was so good, it stuck. Here's what he wrote, trying to capture what we've been reading. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. The, the tune, by the way, didn't come till, uh, till later. It was taken from Handel. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And no, he did not intend that to be a Christmas song. Not at all. Look at what he wrote. He wrote, the Lord is come. The Lord is come. He didn't say has come. That was a change people made later. Tyler Scarlett comments on this. I liked it. I put it in your notes. He says, Watts was not describing a past event, the birth of Jesus, but rather looking forward to a future event, the return of Jesus. And that's precisely what the song is about. It speaks of Jesus' final coming to earth when the Savior reigns and when he rules the world with truth and grace. Watts longed for that glorious final day when the nations will prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Watts was right. We know the end of the story, and Christians win! We, we know that right now we're dearly loved. Look at verse 1. We're dearly loved. That allows us to agree in the Lord, right? That allows us to be gracious, to help the brethren come together, to rejoice always. Remember, this text is a love note that was written for you, and it comes from God. That alone should give us cause to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, what difference does that make? Look at the text. Look, look at your own life. When I know I'm dearly loved, I rejoice. When I know the Lord is near, I rejoice. When we rejoice, that, then we can agree in the Lord with people. Even, when I rejoice, I can agree in the Lord even with nutcases like you, right? When I rejoice, I can be gracious and not call you nutcases. When I rejoice, I can help the brethren come together. Joy to the world changes everything. You see, when we open our eyes, we see the continuous causes for rejoicing. And when we rejoice, all of our relationships are positively affected. Amen? Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for anybody studying with me, wherever they may be, that has never believed on Jesus as Savior. Oh, Lord, I pray today is the day that they understand and that you reveal their name in the book of life. 
Friend, listen. I know it's amazing, but God loves you. Yes, you are sinful just as I am. Your sin separates you from God. Yes, of course, because he's holy. But the Bible is right. God the Son died for you. His blood, sweat, and tears made a way for you that if you will believe on Jesus, he pays for your sin. He, he gives you a cause to rejoice always. And then he rose from the dead so that you would know the end of the story, which is life forever. If you've never done so, believe on Jesus right now. Trust him as your Savior. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. I just want to rejoice with you. Raise your hand. Super. Thank you. Father, I pray for all these who are believers in Jesus, such precious, precious people. I pray that we will remember the end of the story. We win. That we will know right now and every day that we are dearly loved by you, that that will allow us to agree, to be gracious, to help the brethren come together. And most of all, Lord, that we will rejoice always. In Jesus' name, amen.